Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And for October Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I'm super excited to have Douglas Steele, who is the chief program officer for none other than the National Breast Cancer Foundation. Doug, thank you for being here. And um, and I'm really curious, what, what made you passionate about what you do? Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's an honor to be here. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I've been a nonprofit for probably 20 years. And I, honestly, I started in the arts. Uh, you know, uh, I did music in my 20s and I thought I was going to move to New York area. And I was really trying to pursue that. It didn't work out as well. And I did an arts nonprofit for a long time. And somewhere in the midst of that, my mother was diagnosed with myelofibrosis, which eventually um, progressed to leukemia. I'm sure you're familiar with, with that. I'm so um, sorry. Yeah. And so I think at that time she was given maybe two or three years to live and she ended up going for 13 years. Wow. Which was, yes, which was incredible. And you, but you know, and you know this from, from your work, you know, you just never know, you know, we don't, we don't have an expiration date, right? It's, it could, anything can happen. And so she lived a long time. We had a really beautiful moment, but that really gave me the, passion and the purpose for what I do, I would say, you know, and, uh, I, I started, I got married. I started having kids. I was like, I gotta get serious about my career and what I want to do. And music wasn't really working out <laughs> to, be, to be very blunt. And, uh, I started at the national breast cancer foundation about 15 years ago. And, uh, I started out in fundraising and development and then got a passion for our program. That's awesome. You know, you said something that I think is so important and I keep trying to stress to my patients is, is you never know, like as far as the expiration date, but even more than that, and that's a very, you know, I think hard way to hear it, whether, I mean, whether it's cancer related or not, right? Like we all have an expiration date, but the more than that, it's, it's within cancer and breast cancer, we've learned over the last, you know, couple of years, if not longer, that it is so different. Breast cancer is so much more than just like your hormone receptor status, which even that got turned kind of upside down on what we called negative, you know, for her too. And is it negative? And now it's not and all these things. But the point being is every year it's like, well, it's more complicated than we think. Yep. And, and I think, you know, anyone listening, like, please, it's, it's very hard not to go. I can't imagine to go to the statistics, but statistics are basically one without all the crazy new stuff that's come out even in the last year or two, right? And the screening and how how exactly something was done on one patient than the other, but also how you respond. It's just, there's so many different ways to break down, uh, which really goes back to that concept of precision. Like, what is it for you? Like your cancer, yourself, and, and how to best manage it. Um, to that same point, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, confusion too. So I've heard things about, you know, one and just take a stab at the first one that that you may be able to speak on uh or want to speak on most eagerly one are we doing too many mammograms right does some of this dcis so the stage zero ductal carcinoma inside you are we just basically you know do our bodies kind of actually they would have taken care of it right if we didn't get the lumpectomy well i was even going to ask you i've i've seen some of your podcasts and you know i you're a doctor so i kind of want to i'm not a doctor uh, I've never seen patients. So even though I'm in this industry and I'm trying to raise support to help patients, I'm not a doctor. So I kind of like to keep, I 
I don't want to flip the podcast on you, but I do want to hear your opinion. Absolutely. I mean, I've even heard some on our medical advisory board. We have a wonderful medical advisory board, including Lily Shockney from Johns Hopkins. And I remember talking to her years ago, and she even mentioned about DCIS, maybe even not being labeled as cancer at all. You know, when we do this cancer registries, that's not on there. And so I don't know, have we come to that place yet? I mean, from your from your view? No, it's definitely a, a topic of discussion. Um, you know, I think it brings a, an important point on like, on evidence-based, right? So it's it's people like, yeah, but but what does that mean? Or, or but if we're learning this, then then why that? And it really just goes back to the same thing. I mean, we used to do like big mastectomies on everyone, right? And go into the the muscle tissue, and and then we're like, do we need that? Do we need this? Can we get away with a piece? But then do radiation. The same thing happens here, where it's hard not to do more, mm-hmm. right? Just in the same way that we used to have these very kind of you know graphic surgeries until we learned by the evidence that we can do less so like better safe than sorry i guess yeah yeah. and i think that is something that we're like looking into um is is do they remit because we beat cancers all the time right we or or pre-cancers our bodies and our immune systems take care of that so um it's a good question you know and i think i think uh it's worth talking to you know an oncologist about or 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 reading about if it's from the right sources um another you know, thing to that point that I was excited about is that IV contrast we've used forever, right? Like in a lot of our studies, it was finally approved to be given as part of mammograms, for example. So now kind of all this distress that goes with, you know, an abnormal lesion, biopsy, ultrasound, MRI, contrast allows you to see features about cancers that may be um, either, you know, more in line with cancer or not, right? Like do they recruit a lot of blood supply? What is the echo texture? Like, is it is it the same, you know, on that ultrasound or not when you get that mammogram to see if it looks more more variegated? So that, I think, will hopefully improve a lot of things. Is that something y'all are doing or know how that's being executed kind of in the workflow? Because when you have something built, right, it's like mammograms, ultrasounds, MRIs. Now the contrast comes in, and I got a lot of questions on, on you know, is it helpful, is it not? Is it, where do y'all help um, or, yeah, do you, have you have you seen that like kind of take place in the community? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the main thing, and I'm I'm not sure if you know all that we do, but our biggest program is we fund uh, screenings, diagnostic, biopsy tests for uh, uninsured women across the country. Now, obviously, there's states where the insurance coverage is excellent. Connecticut's one. I lived in Connecticut for a while. I was on the state insurance at one point. You know, uh, and so. I think there's states where there's coverage or states where there's not. Uh, I won't list them all, but you know, you know well, I'll say Texas because I'm in Texas right now. And I think in those states, you know, we're, our funding, that's what I love about NBCF. We're very flexible with our funding. So if we get a call from a doctor and they say, you know, we need to do something else. We need to look at this differently with contrast, for example. If they email us and said, you know, I know your funding says it's, you fund this, this, and this but would you fund this? We would say yes, because we want to do everything that we can to help the patient. It's not just being more precise. It's also, there's so many things, and I've seen this even on your podcast, you know, eliminating fear and stress. If you can be more precise, you can eliminate fear for the patient yeah. right? and relief. And then, what does that do? Right. Does that take the toll that takes on the body? Yeah, and the fact that like, you know, at the end of the day, 
there's nothing worse than saying, you know, my wife or my daughter or my husband for that matter, you know, could have a different outcome if we could afford this yes. or if only we could afford this or if only, you know, we had the ability to get it sooner. And those are things that are really invaluable, whether the outcome would have been different or not, no. you know, psychologically and emotionally that has downstream dividends on, on several people, right? Including the patient. So that's very interesting that basically a doctor can a patient as well just be able to get that aid so say the mri is appropriate but they're unable to pay for based on their you know insurance policy or no insurance are those scenarios where you know somebody doesn't have to basically just accept that they will not get the investigation they need and be able to come to nbcf to to get assistance yeah well we do partner with specific hospitals in in countries so or in say countries in states uh in communities across the country. So we're not everywhere. Unfortunately, our give, you know, if we had however many tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, we would be, but, uh, right now, you know, we need to grow. Um, we're in all 50 States, but we're in various, uh, targeted areas that we know we can reach the most amount of people, but we're not everywhere. So an example, I grew up in the panhandle of Texas, which is that little top part of, you know, it's like the top part of Texas, very, not very populated. Um, my town had 7,000. I, th- I always tell people I was 12th in my class. And then I tell them, what? comma, uh, out of 26. <laughs> so, uh, so far, I wasn't a doctor, Sanjay. Um, but so I think, you know, individual patients, if they reach out to us, we're going to do everything that we can. We have a whole mechanism and a navigation system to do that for sure. Um, but our funding goes to specific hospitals. So if you're in that hospital, say MD Anderson, where we have a, a partnership there and the pay and the doctor emails us and says, this patient doesn't have funding for this, this, or this, uh, will you, can we use your grant funds? Yes. The answer is yes. Anything that we can do to remove the barrier of, of getting to that diagnosis from suspicious finding to a diagnosis, we're going to do it. I wish that we could do it if we had probably what, $200 million every year, we could do it probably for everyone. Um, but as you know, this is a cost. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And I hear, you know, I'm a big kind of enthusiast, I guess, to learn what value AI and AI systems are able to bring, uh, possibly related to cost, but even through, you know, the number of necessary steps and possibly kind of making it more concentrated or, or necessary. Um, do you have any like knowledge or, or are y'all looking at those kind of things that may help these communities be able to do things, I guess, either quicker or better or more affordably? Yeah. I mean, we're looking at AI in all aspects of our operations, quite frankly, it's, but, uh, I will say this, you know, being in a nonprofit, you, you attract people who are very, warm you know we even do personality tests on our staff and and our volunteers it's it's people who want to give back they want to they want to volunteer it's the people that volunteer it's the people who have these huge hearts so <laughs> how do i say this it's not always the scientists that we attract you know like we're we're getting this certain type of person in our organization right which is good and it it fuels our passion to do work but we don't know about ai necessarily <laughs> so when all this came, when was the, it was almost like there was one week last year where everybody was talking about AI. I don't know if you remember that, like last spring, yeah. the buzz word. And so we were all, we, we created a 
we have we use Slack to communicate. So we created a Slack channel, and we were all just reading everything we could about AI, and I mean in all aspects of our business. So donations. How can we use AI to increase our donations? Because we want to help more people. How can we use AI to grow our social media uh, platforms? Because we more people that see our stuff, the more, you know, so we were looking at all these tools. And, and then, you know, recently the study that came out of Sweden um, that showed that radiology, that AI actually, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but it was almost better at the AI group was was better at reading mammograms than to radiologists. That's very, I don't know if that's controversial to say, but that's what the study uh, said. And did you read that study? It was out of Sweden. If you, I did. I did. Yeah. Reading? You know, I think people have kind of hyper reflexive um, <laughs> opinions on AI, right? And And basically it's just, you know, in some way, and maybe somebody would disagree, but AI is a combination of not just 10, 20, 100, or 1,000 radiologists, but it's taking, you know, 10,000 radiologists that read only mammograms and breasts, and just like you want someone that's experienced or has been doing this a long time or whatever, putting it all together and then and then being the aggregate of that mind, right, of all those minds combined. And it's able to learn at a precision, whereas, you know, our eyeballs can appreciate, you know, a little obscure kind of border on, on a calcification in a mammogram to some degree and millimeters to some degree, even with our measuring tools. But when radiologists use measuring tools and kind of justify their conclusions, AI can do that, but, but, but at a logarithmic level of everybody combined. And I think that's where, you know, these are, again, not replacements for things at all, but they're ways to then you know, in this example, as a foundation, you're financing, you know, to help people with something that was deemed scary or needed more investigation. And there is a percentage of those mammograms that maybe they fell on someone else's eyeballs, right? That it was like, in fact, benign and actually, and actually not concerning, but a repeat in three to six months rather than the MRI and biopsy. Right. That's variability, right? That's the person that's reading that mammogram. So, one, it could help the angst and unnecessary, you know, imaging and biopsies. But two, it can really help kind of preserve the the funding and the foundations and the costs that go into the healthcare system as a whole, you know, across everything, cancer and not, but also to the aid and really have a higher yield of what what provokes the anxiety and that really, you know, challenging time for a family. And number two, um, what is necessary or needed uh, or not needed. So, you know, I think... Uh, I find that interesting and I'm not exactly sure where the resistance for that, that comes from other than maybe the presumption that that means that everything has to be by a non, you know, Dr. Brain. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I'm really interested in more studies. I mean, I was done in Sweden. We need to do it here. Right. And I think one of the other things was, uh, they didn't, they weren't tracking race or ethnicity. Which is uh, but one of the, the things that stuck out to me on that were the time that it could potentially save and you kind of alluded to that um and it it, and it was very clear it's not going to be a replacement it's going to be a tool and i think that's how we have to to look at it's a tool like at some point right in our history we didn't have a screwdriver a wrench or a hammer and then at one point we did and somebody was probably mad because they're like no i use this rock to 
to hammer to sing it works really well and that i'm really good at making these rocks I, i'm just making so i don't right no, no pre no it makes sense prehistoric uh history but you know at some point all these tools that we use there was probably um hesitancy and, and somebody didn't want to do it but i think we have to embrace technology we are looking at a how we can use it as a tool in everything that we do i was in a i'm not going to tell you the name of the country but i was in a country a few years back again i'm not a doctor i but i I love to learn, you know, and, um, but I was with I can tell. Dog. all the books behind you. Yeah. Yeah. I love, yeah. And I brought this, I, I saw that you, you like, uh, you, you follow this emperor bell maladies. Yeah. yeah. Um, I saw that on one of your podcasts, but I was in a country and we were looking at ways that we could help this population find breast cancers early, which is going to sound crazy when I say the rest of what I'm about to say, but, uh, in that country, they had one radiologist for the entire country. And they had a state hospital with one mammography, with one mammography machine that was apparently, I don't know all the details about it, was built a few decades earlier and was refurbished to look like it was a GE machine. And it wasn't plugged in. <laughs> and like literally, I walk in and it's like not even connected. I think the point of what I'm saying is I think there's a lot of here in the United States where we have all these resources, it's easy to have these arguments. But what if I'm like, can we get AI immediately in these countries where there's one radiologist like tomorrow? Right. Right now. And then can we build the infrastructure to uh, get screening and mammograms and so that people aren't having to show their tumors to their doctor? That's kind of how I think about it. But also in the United States, we have a shortage of radiologists. We have wait long wait times despite what we think. And so I think it could be used as a tool and I think we should embrace. And if and, it, and then if it's better, we should embrace it, I think. What do you think? You're yeah. a doctor. No, I mean, I think I think they, it helps facilitate a lot of things uh, on an already over-exhausted, you know, system. Like yeah. it takes forever to get your imaging, it takes forever to get your biopsy, get the results. So if the number of things that are causing the taking forever were reduced, then maybe it would take less forever, right? So I think I think anything that expedites that is uh, is better. So do you have any? Um, I'm very curious. I'm sure you have some stories of ways that someone's, you know, passion for cancer or wanting to support somebody in a difficult situation really was magical. Uh, do you have some of those stories to share on how you know this? Every cancer community is very close and tight knit, but uh, and everyone's unique and but uniquely in breast cancer there's just a such a you know such a tight uh sense of i think identity and and um i don't know companionship so what are some of those stories if you have any i mean i could go on and on uh so many stories i mean one of the thing the programs i'm most proud of right now that we're doing we uh about a decade or so ago that same uh, nurse navigator and you know, professor Johns Hopkins Lillian Shockman started uh, what's called the metastatic retreat. And what she does is she brings in about 12 patients and they go to a retreat facility for the weekend and they bring their caregivers. So she'll have one with the husbands. And then if, if a patient's not married, they can bring a female caregiver like sister or spouse or whatever. And um, I can't, every single retreat, we hear these 
just insane stories. It was one um, where a patient came, she, had a, she was stage four, uh, probably less than a year to live, but she was healthy enough to go to the retreat. You know, they travel, we, we pay for everything. So they get there, they don't have to pay for anything. And the whole point of the retreat is your time is limited, right? There's no cure. So what are your hopes for the rest of your time? And what are your fears? If for that patient, she had a four-year-old daughter. If she said, my hope is I want to see my child graduate. Well, we got to get that in line. Anyways, as the conversation started with this particular patient, and this story has been told by Lily a few times, but this patient actually didn't have anywhere for her daughter to go. She had no family. And so when, when, when that question was asked, she said, well, I guess I'll just put her in foster. Well, her female caregiver was right there. And she started crying. And she was upset. And, you know, they pulled them aside and say, what's going on? And she said, well, I've always wanted to take her daughter. I'm, I'm her caregiver. I've always wanted to take her daughter. The patient was pulled aside. Like, what's going on? Well, I don't want to ask her because I've, she's taken care of me all these years. I don't want to put this burden on her. They, wow. had never, they had never had the conversation. They had never had this conversation. So at this retreat, they, they talk through everything. This caregiver says, I want to take her daughter. I want to adopt her. I want her to be mine. The patient said, I want her to adopt. I want her to take my child. They bring them back together. They talk it through. They make a plan. Patient dies. Four months later, the girl is adopted. Um, we had a patient at one who came in and said she was her two positive and never heard of um, septic. She was in a rural setting in had very. I don't know how that happened. That might have been like. No, these are things that destroy me. They, yeah, they yeah. still happen. Yeah, this might have been years ago, but she was like, "What's her septic?" <laughs> And wasn't on it and went from probably months to live to maybe extending by years. It's catastrophically different with trastuzumab. Uh, if you have what is traditionally a pretty aggressive, you know, receptor or two. Um, and then, you know, the reason it flipped on, on, on survival is purely because we were <clears throat> found a way to neutralize <clears throat> the very aggressive property, you know, that her two is. But so those are the things that really um, bother me. And also, I mean, just either to some degree guilt and shame because I'm part of the healthcare system, but also, you know, understanding that like there is stuff to be done and, and could be done better. And then ultimately why we do this, right? The, the podcast, the social media, it's like, you know, it may seem fun or, or even self-serving, but it's like at the end of the day, it, if it was all taken away, like, it'd be like, I hope, you know, we hope that people were helped, right? And that's the whole, if it ever becomes anything beyond that, then it's in vain and you're a parasite in the world. But if you're going to, like, help something that has escaping hole, is the it, it, equity of care. Yeah, like absolutely. It, and the fact that it has to be, that's what blows my mind. In 2023, in a multi-billion dollar industry, why the social media and its videos, how can that influence getting someone to standardize, you know, optimal wow. care? My guidelines today like that that's what what is 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 very distressing what are some of the things that 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 can be done uh to your foundation or anything you've seen to make sure that that kind of equity where things are just severely you know there's a big deficit not enough ecologists or not enough whatever people are coming in and out 
what are some of the things that you found or know of that can help to kind of equalize to make sure where you live doesn't dictate how you do with a with a diagnosis? Well, and I, I would love to get your thoughts on this too, again. Um, but I do think patient nav- navigation helps. We fund. Huge. Yeah. We, we have about close to 30 patient navigator programs that we fund. So we've been doing that for like over a decade. Uh, we've actually been funding navigation. That's huge. Long time in hospitals that uh, now one of the struggles we're having with right now is a lot of these hospital, these like small little hospitals that were doing this great navigation work to bring equity are getting bought up. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll be quiet. But, uh, you know, so that's that's tricky too now. But I think for us, one of the things that we just launched in this October is our Spanish initiative. And so we are working really hard to translate as much material as we can uh, into Spanish the outreach. We're partnering with Univision, the television network. Um, we have a wonderful team that's working on that. I'm, not, I'm, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm not on the team, but um, they are really targeting uh, women who may not have access, who may be undocumented, um, but they're working here, right? And how can we screen them? How can we? Because it's in everybody's best interest to find breast cancer early, right? Yeah. Treat it early when in the earliest stage, not when they're showing up in the ER. So uh, we are doing everything we can to make people feel comfortable to go to their hospital. I'm not going to butcher the words, I won't say, but it's it basically says one in eight. And the whole concept of the initiative is put yourself first. You know, you take care of your children, you take care, you do all of these things. You go to work, your mother. You put your children first. You know, we we all we've heard stories where people have uh, saved up money for a mammogram, and they got the cash or whatever, and then the kid, their kid needed a new basketball shoe. They took the money out, went buy new, you know, things like that. So we are encouraging Hispanic women to put themselves first to go get screened, and that's safe and it's okay. And there's hospitals. There's hospital here in Dallas County, Parkland Hospital, that will take that will get you all the way through survivorship from early detection through survivorship. They will, they will take you in and they will take care of you. And we have navigators that we fund there that that's their job is to make sure that the wait time is similar to UT Southwestern, which is an NCI designated hospital. Right. Um, so that's, that's incredible. That's our message and our goal is, you know, put yourself, you matter, your, your life matters. We need you to be alive, you know, Simple things like that can really make uh, a big difference. We've been at events where we've talked to women who need to be screened and they, they'll say things like, well, does my life even matter? We'll just see what happens. Fate will dictate. No, your life does matter. And we don't want to rely on faith when we have all these fate, when we have all these tools that can keep you here and your children so that we, yeah. you know, that's what we believe in. That's magical. I, I, I love that. It's, it really helps mind and body both, you know, yeah. what you're doing. So Doug, you're, you just, the golden like ray from you is something that is very, uh, easy to appreciate. Um, I have to ask you at the close of this two things, if you could tell a patient any one thing, what would that be? And then if you're somebody, if you're telling someone that's a non-patient because of what you see and the needs still that exist in breast cancer and, and preventing and everything, 
what would that be and how would they differ? I'm just going to shoot. They would first from the heart. My, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, our mission is hope. In DCF, our mission is hope. Our founder was diagnosed in 1981. Uh, she was 34 years old. She, she woke up and found out she had breast cancer from another surgery. She was like, okay, I'm going to die immediately. She's alive today. Just talked to her yesterday. She's amazing, full of energy, still leading our organization. Wonderful. I think stories like that are important to tell people, but we've always, our organization's always been infused with hope. And I'm not saying anything against anyone else, but a lot of times in cancer, you see that those battle metaphors, and you got to be strong and you got to be, uh, you're going to fight this. You're going to be, don't this, give up. Yeah. Or F cancer or whatever. And that's fine. I think everybody has different personalities. When my mom was diagnosed, she, that was not her personality. She was very timid and she was a nurse in Vietnam, uh, but she was timid and it broke her being in war. Anyway, uh, some people need hope. They need hope. They need a message of hope. So that's what we do. We want to be a message of hope. We don't want to tell you to fight. We want to tell you that we're here for you. And I want to, I actually, if, if any of your listeners are, are there right now and they need hope, or they need support and they feel alone, please try us out. Call us. We don't need a donation. We need, we want to help you. We just want to help. And I think we can do it. We have so many different ways to help. In so many ways to feel to to give people hope, and I think that some people need that. Some people need to say, "I'm going to fight," and that's okay too. There's nothing wrong with that. That's beautiful. I, that's a very important message that I try to share too. Is is and I worry sometimes when there are these you know random mentorship programs where everyone maybe I'm naive means yeah. well. Yeah, it's like you get matched with a survivor, yes. you know, and then but it's just it's it's okay that if something doesn't hit you you know, that way or, mm -hmm. or the right way. It's okay if something doesn't feel right. Everyone has, you know, a hundred shades of, of what and how, but to keep exploring until you find that because um, hope is so important. So I really appreciate you shooting from the heart, which I could feel on that one. And then for the person that's, you know, listening that doesn't have cancer, but maybe is is passionate about or enthusiastic about, about wanting to help or um, or how to support, uh, you know, those that do have cancer because they've probably experienced it with a loved one. What's your message? I mean, definitely go visit our website, nbcf.org. Of course you can give, but we have other ways to support giving. You know, I talked about the the need for, uh, I wish that we could do, I think every single person, we, we lose 40,000 women to breast cancer every year. I think 40,000 women should be able to go to a metastatic retreat and, and get those services. When they, when our metastatic patients go to a retreat, they do a survey at the beginning and they say, what is your fear level? And usually it's about eight or nine. When they walk away from that retreat, it's at a two, three, and four. That's, six, That's incredible. That means you can actually have the rest of your time and it could be enjoyable. You can live your life. We want to do that for everyone that's metastatic and that's a challenge. So donating, volunteer, we have tons of volunteer opportunities. We have community ambassadors that outreach uh, communities, so many different ways. So I would just say visit nbcf.org. We have a podcast as well. I want to have you on at some point if you're I love open. That. Uh, we'd love to have you as a guest. It's called Hope Ignited, and I think it's on all. Oh, I'm not really, I'm not in marketing, <laughs> but it's on uh, all of the podcast channels. 
And, uh, but yeah, they're just come to visit our site and whether you're a patient or someone who wants to support a loved one, I feel like we have all the different angles where you could plug in and, and get involved. In that example where someone's anxiety and outlook on their diagnosis goes from an eight or a nine going into a retreat and a two, a two to three on, on, you know, after a retreat distilled down in your opinion, what do you think was the thing that changed that level when the diagnosis didn't change? What made that drastic difference about the retreat, any retreat? You'd, all, you'd almost have to see it. Um, but I think one very big thing that jumps out is being around other people that are going through the same thing as you. So identity. Yeah. That, yes. Connecting with other people. All right. Okay. I've, you are all going down this road with me. And, and you're all, you're all I'm saying the same thing. You feel similar to me, you know, this existential dread of, of like, what's going to happen? What was this all, what was this whole thing about? And then focusing, then they introduce hospice and palliative care. We're big promoters, promoters of hospice and palliative care. I think there's a lot of fear behind that. We remove the fear of that. Like you don't have to be afraid of hospice, you know, palliative care is not hospice, right? You think it is, you know that. You see patients and you almost still want to tell them. Right. Um, and then uh, removing those fears. Also, uh, we bring in oncologists to talk about updates. So there may even be clinical trials that they can get on. Then also we encourage them to do milestones. So one of the sessions that we do is a milestone session where they make cards for those milestones in their family. Like if you have a child who's four and you know you're not going to see them graduate, but you can make a video or a card now and you can leak your links. And, oh, wow. That's heavy. So we really focus on like, uh, you, you know, we don't say you're going to make it, but we say we can meet some of these hopes and these things that you want to do with the rest of your time. You desensitize it and the uncomfortable. At least you just desensitize it. And I see that every day of, you know, with a new diagnosis or a patient with a new diagnosis. The diagnosis doesn't change if someone can go from very scared and, and you know, uncomfortable to not, to like laughing and happy the next week or the next month. And that's because there was a desensitization of something that was very scary and, you know, people ask like how do you do oncology isn't depressing i'm like dude it's only it's only humbling because you see that 99.99 i'm gonna say 100 percent of people when they are when they meet the discomfort and i could never speak as if i am one of those but i mm -hmm. see it in the room it's, it's whether you call it divine you know inherent they they just i feel like people can overcome anything if they are afforded the opportunity to understand and meet it you know, head on and get guidance to get that, to be able to meet it. Sometimes it takes handholding because it's uncharted waters. It's a dark room. But if somebody can help them get there and see what's there, I just have yet to see a patient that just doesn't, like, over, like, that just doesn't valiantly take it. I mean, it, it, and that's what's humbling. Like, I, I could never imagine myself see, like, having the strength that I see every day. And I think that's something so special and, and really is a big reason to foster any aid, you know, whether emotional, financial, like stress or whatever to those people because they they really are valiant and it's in, it's just very humbling. And it's in well, you too. It's in you too. It's in all. It's, I, right? Not to that degree. You've I appreciate that. But... You've got to mine it. You know, you've got to dig in and get it out. Yeah. Yeah. 
but 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 yeah, no, that's one hundred percent true. But you know, I always say, as close as I am, like if I've learned anything, is that I'll never really know, or I'll never feel comfortable speaking on what it's like, right? Like like it's that's a whole that's a mm-hmm. binary thing, and it's it's just humbling, and I I just can't imagine. Yeah, I don't know. It's very humbling. Yes, but, Doug, I appreciate you so much. This was awesome. Um, you're clearly very passionate about what you do, and I certainly hope to be following up together because uh, you're doing a beautiful thing. And that that retreat concept is one that I think I need to definitely, you know, introduce or make sure that people are aware of. That you just kind of get in the company of people that 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 may understand you better than even the most loving family members. Yeah, well, and I I don't know if you see specifically breast cancer patients, Ron, or but um, in- I, while we were on this call, I got a an email. And we just got a new grant one more. We're probably going to fund about 10 or 15 more retreats. So great. If you are wanting to talk, like maybe try it out. Yeah. NBCF. Yeah. Awesome. Doug, thank you so much. Thank you.